Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Thank you, Father, for inviting us into your throne room tonight. We thank you that you have given us this wonderful opportunity to meet with one another and to fellowship, even if it is via the internet and across the miles. Uh, we value the time that we can spend together, not only with each other, but primarily that we can spend with you. And so we um, we uh, uh, seek to uh, uplift your kingdom, to um, to praise your holy name, uh, to gather around the the uh, banner of Yeshua, and to uh, uh, just to fellowship with one another via the Spirit. Thank you for uh, bringing us together week by week, and uh, we especially thank you for. Uh, the words that you have left for us, the notes that we use that are more than just notes. They are our very instructions for life. For indeed, Lord, um, uh, if we do not uh, follow after your ways and after your words and your instructions, we'll have no uh, blueprint for living. We'll have no compass uh, to guide us. And we know it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are even able to to follow after you, to uh, to have a heart to do your will and to be pleasing to you because in and of ourselves lord we just we wander too much we we like what what they say what the scriptures say we like sheep we 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 uh go astray each one to his own way and so we need you lord to continually uh show us the right way in which to walk and the path that is pleasant Thank you, Yeshua, that um, your yoke is easy, your burden is light. It is not a difficult thing for us to walk into the law of Messiah because uh, it is with joy that and, and delight that we do so because of what you've done for us, because of the finished work of the cross. And so uh, may that ever be our goal, to be like you, to be conformed after the image of the Son of, Mes- uh, the Son of God. Uh, give us um, ears to hear and a heart to to know and to understand. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Uh, let's date stamp our recording tonight is July the 15th for most of you, uh, 2017. This is week 66 of the Exegeting Galatians commentary, and uh, it's a delight to be with you. My name is Ariel, and I'm a Torah teacher out at Congregation Kehilat de Nuva in Thornton, Colorado. would love to have you Come out and join us sometime if you're ever in the Denver area. Um, as far as the Galatians commentary, we meet each weekend, Saturday night, from about 7 p.m. to about uh, approximately 8 p.m. Central Standard Time. And um, it's uh, via Skype. So all you need is an internet connection. And if you've got a Skype account, that's great. If you don't, you can join as a guest. But... To get all the relevant information, just head on over to my website at tetzetorah.com, T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, and click on the Galatians commentary link at the very top of the page, and you'll find all of the relevant information there, the written notes, the audio notes that I record each week and upload to my website after uh, after a few days. You can also find me on the iTunes store uh, under the podcast section, so if you have iTunes installed on your Mac or your PC, your Windows computer, um, uh, open up iTunes, and then just do a search in the search field. I think it's in the upper right corner, if I remember. Type in my last name, Hanavi, or 
Type in Galatians and look through the uh, podcast sections and you'll find me there. I think I'm one of the few Messianic commentaries, uh, podcasts out there, although there are quite a few Christian commentaries out there, but I'm one of the few that are, that's teaching a, uh, a, a, a Torah positive message. So, which, hey, what can I say? All right. Um, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with the study tonight. And for the, uh, Hebrew section that we're that we're fond of reading out of the Tanakh. Then we're going to read uh, this time. We're going to read Deuteronomy six again. We've read this also in the past. Certain verses that that we're just going to keep borrowing from time to time because of their relevance to the the one of the central themes in the book of Galatians, which is of course uh, this uh, a believer's and the unbeliever, but primarily a believer's identity with the Torah itself, with the law of God. And, of course, uh, Abraham is one of the central topics that we're going to use from time to time because he's a central feature in the book of, in the book of Galatians. Tonight we're going to read Deuteronomy 6, and we're just going to read the last six, I'm sorry, the last five verses, which, as I mentioned, we've read before in the past. Deuteronomy 6, verse uh, verses 20 through 25, ESV reads like this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the... T- uh, testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Verse 23, And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And the last verse, And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. End quote. Of course, this the context is Moshe explaining to the people of Israel one of the primary reasons why God even administered or gave the Torah to Israel as a people. I imagine that uh, there's this question from the people of Israel. What's the meaning of the Torah? Why then the law? And it's the sons who ask the question in verse 20. Why, you know, your son, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies? In other words, why the law? And and Moshe gives at least one primary reason, and we can see, and we'll talk about this a little later on, but I just wanted to kind of whet your appetite with the passage there from Deuteronomy first. Now let's go ahead and entertain the Hebrew uh, counterpart. Uh, let's see, I've got, this time I'm using a, a slightly different interlinear version, online version, because I like the layout of the verses. This is actually studylight.org's interlinear Bible. So it's at www.studylight, S-T-U-D-Y-L-I-G-H-T.org. And they've got some great biblical tools there that are available for anyone to use. And for now, we're going to use their interlinear Hebrew, starting in verse 20 again. For those of you who are in the class with me live, you should see the, uh, looks like quite a, quite a busy page on the screen. But just remember, from top to bottom, we've got a Strong's number. Then below that, there's some transliterated Hebrew, if you can read that using English. Immediately below that, there's the Hebrew script. Below that, there is a wooden word-for-word uh, interlinear translation. And then below that, we've got the parts of speech, what we call the morphology, with all the, 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 the nouns and verbs and all that things, all those things. All right, let's read these uh, same passages out of, uh, out of the Hebrew. Uh, starting in verse 20, we read, Ki yishalcha vincha machar lemur ma ha'idot v'hahukim v'hamishpatim asher tziva Adonai Elohinu et chem. Verse 21, V'amarata levincha avadim hayinu lufaro b'mitzrayim v'yotzienu Adonai m'mitzrayim b'yad chazaka. Verse 22, Vaitain Adonai Otot Umoftim Gudolin Varain Bamitraim Bafaro Uhol Beto Leinenu Verse twenty three Vautanu Hutsi Misham Lamaan Havi Utanu Latet Lanu et Ha Erz Ad Shir Nishba La Avotenu Verse twenty four Vaitzeveno Adonai la asot et kolha hukin ha ele 
ליראה את אדוני אלוהינו לטוב לנו כל הימים לחיותינו כהיום הזה. And the final verse, verse 25, וצדקה תהיה לנו כי נשמור לעשות את כל המצווה הזאת לפני אדוני אלוהינו כאשר ציוונו. All right, let's turn to our um, passage out of the Apostolic Scriptures, and this is going to be Galatians 3, and we're starting in verse 15. This is the same section we read last week because we're going to be covering verse 19 tonight. All right, why then the law? And that's why I brought in the Deuteronomy passage, in case you hadn't uh, guessed earlier. So, but we'll, we'll catch the context of Paul's argument by jumping back up to verse 15, and we're going to read all the way down through to verse 22. So it's a big, long swath of uh, uh, section 3. And that'll kind of give us the context of what we're dealing with tonight. Galatians 3, 15 through 22 reads out of the ESV, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant, previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer, uh, I'm sorry, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And the last verse, verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, let's go back and read the Greek of that same. We're going to use the same um, resource, uh, Study Light. Uh, let's just bring up Galatians. And we'll drop down to verse, starting at verse 15. Okay, for those of you on the screen, should be able to follow along. Remember this time, Greek reads re, uh, left uh, left to right, just like English, unlike the Hebrew, which read right to left. So if you want to try and follow along with me, we're starting right over here where I've got my mouse highlighted. All right, verse 15 reads, Adelphoi kata anthropon, lego hamos anthropu kekuromenen diathekein udes athete e epidiatasetai. To de Abraham Erethesen hai pangeliai, kaitos permati autu u lege kaitos permasin hos epipolon al hos ef ef henas kaitos permati suhas estin Christas. Verse 17. Tuta de lego diathekein prokukeromenein hupa tutheo ho metatetrakasia kaitriakanta ete. Geganos namasuk akroi esto katargesai tein epangelian. Verse 18. E namu he kleronamia uketi ek epangelias to de Abram di epangelias ke karistai ho theos. Verse 19. Tiun honamas ton parabasion charen prosetete achris hu elthe to sperma ho Epangeltai, the Atages de Angelon in Kerai Mesitu. Ho de Mesites Henos uk Estin ho de Theos Heis Estin. And verse 21. Ho un namas kata ton Epangelion tu Theu megnoito egar edathe namas ho dunamenas opuesai antos ek namu an in he de Kayusune. And uh, I think we stopped at verse 22. It reads, 
Alas una clase en grave tapanta jupa hamartian, gine he pangelia e pistios Jesu Christu, dothe tois pistiusin. And we'll stop there. Uh, let's now go look at the commentary. And basically we're going to cover just verse 19. Why then the law? Um, and it's, it's, it's this question that has really caused the primary division, the question and answer that Paul gives us, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom this promise had been made, and it was put in place uh, through angels by an intermediary. It is really this verse that has caused the, the one of the single biggest disagreements between the traditional Christian camp and their interpretation of the ongoing relevance of the, the Mosaic uh, administration and the sharp disagreement between the current Messianic movement, the Torah movement, the, the Messianic communities of the Messianic Judaisms of today over uh, the ongoing applicability of the Torah. So let's jump right into the thick of it. Um, I'm not going to, in, to create any segue from last week's commentary. Instead, just uh, remind you if you don't remember what we talked about last week, well, go get the podcast, right? Okay. Because at this point in time, I don't think I need to create this, this strong segue between the two. But let's jump right into my commentary. We are in the, near the bottom of page 129. So, verse 19. We'll read it again out of my commentary. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until, and that word until is the biggest single word that kind of pops out in the, uh, in the, uh, in this particular chapter, in this section for most commentators. And we're going to look at it as well. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. All right, you guys ready? Here we go. This is going to take a little longer to explain this verse, but in my opinion, it's not really a difficult verse. It just takes a little longer because I've got to do, I've got to give due diligence to both sides of the argument, in all fairness, in order to make sure that I understand what the what traditional Christianity is teaching, I'm going to jump into some of their versions and some of their commentaries, and I pulled them into my uh, uh, commentary here. And then, in order to be fair to the other side, we're going to um, use some traditional Messianic commentaries and see what they've got to say. All right, you guys ready? Comments. Here is Galatians 3.19 in six random yet well-known Bible versions. So, here we go. This is in no particular order. I just grabbed them just because they were kind of a little different uh, and I, I thought the way, it was nice to see how they showed up. And the thing I want to key you into is um, key into Paul's uh, question and answer about why then the law? That's that first question. And then his immediate answer, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It, it's that it's the first few clauses of his answer that caused the most... Um, disagreement between the two camps. Uh, the last clause where it talks about ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator, no one seems to make any huge disagreement or huge discussion about that, although there are a few differing opinions there. But the, the, the meat of our discussion tonight is going to focus on the question, what's the purpose of the law, and the meaty answer about its relationship to transgressions, and particularly this word till or until, this this achri in the Greek. So, Here's KJV, King James Version. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Next one is the ASV, the Authorized Standard Version. It reads, What what then is the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was ordained through angels by the hand of a mediator. The next one that we'll read is the YLT, Young's Literal Translation, which reads, Why then the law? On account of the transgressions it was added, till the seed might come to which the promise hath been made, having been set in order through messengers in the hand of a mediator. Next one is the, uh, I believe it's pronounced Weymouth, but it might be Weymouth. Weymouth New Testament uh, translation reads, why then, why then was the law given? It was imposed later on for the sake of defining sin until the seed should come to whom God had made the promise and its details were laid down by a mediator with the help of angels. 
All right. I like, notice we're starting to get some paraphrasing going on. It was imposed later on for the sake of defining sin. Uh, the next one is the ESV, the, um, uh, the, which is the one we just, that I'm using primarily throughout my commentary, Why then the Law. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come, to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And uh, the last one on my list is David Stern's Complete Jewish Bible, the CJB, which is very popular among Messianic groups, um, Messianic congregations, um, Torah communities. David Stern's version, because of his pro-Torah stance, is made popular in those camps. Also, another version that I should have included in my commentary is the TLV, the Tree of Life version. That's making kind of a um, uh, a lot of uh, headway in a lot of Messianic communities as well because of the fact that it it uses a, a lot of Hebrew terms and it seems to be a, a slightly more pro-Israel, pro-Israel, pro-Torah stance, although it's still heavily influenced by traditional Christian um, hermeneutics when it comes to the applicability of Torah. But they're starting to, to kind of move closer to a more of a positive discussion on Torah. So I didn't put it in my commentary tonight, but maybe in time we'll read it. All right, so we got David Stern's version, which reads, uh, so why then the legal part of the law? Again, David Stern's adding this kind of paraphrase commentary going on. His answer, it was added in order to create transgressions until the coming of the seed about whom this promise had been made Moreover, it was handed down through angels and a mediator. Okay, so those are our, our, our uh, those are just our sampling of versions. What are we to make of what's going on? Um, before we uh, go down to my immediate uh, viewpoint, uh, the way that I understand the verse, let me just say in my commentary. Uh, let me read it this way. Let's turn to a few different Bible commentaries to explain this verse. I'm sorry to examine this verse. The first commentary that I'd like to uh, present uh, to you tonight and quote represents what I believe is essentially the historic Christian interpretation and application of this chair passage. And I call it a chair passage because it, it forms a central theological um, uh, viewpoint when it comes to interpreting one of the purposes of Paul's writing the letter. And indeed it forms a central pillar in what, Christians later interpret as Paul's theology and viewpoints regarding Torah. So, let's read the traditional Christian perspective, and, and uh, uh, the comments uh, that I'm going to use tonight have been lifted from a well-known and well-respected online Bible reading website. Now, some of you ask me in, in email, because I, I interact with a lot of my readers via email. You just ask, basically... Um, Ariel, why do you use so many online commentaries? Why don't you, why don't you actually use more critical commentaries? Uh, the kind you can find in the books, the kind that take up like two or three feet of shelf space on a bookshelf. And one of the, my answers is because um, the internet is so ubiquitous. It's so easily accessible to most people today. A lot of people don't have the money to buy these, these $300, $400 uh, critical commentaries. I have a few of them. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is I think I'm trying to make uh, Bible commentaries available to the most common uh, believers, most common Christians. And for that, that means your standard online versions. And so I think it's not a bad idea to turn to them from time to time and make their resources available and to give them credit for the, the hard work that they've made available, especially by uh, uploading them online for free. The big word there is for free, right? A lot of us can't afford those fancy uh, critical commentaries and the ones we can use are the free versions. So... Let's turn to this particular uh, version. This, I think, let me just scroll all the way down real quick to the bottom, to the uh, footnote, footnote number 126. This was taken from BibleGateway.com, and they've got quite a few commentaries that are available for free. And uh, for the most part, I'm not knocking the commentaries. I'm not blasting them even. I actually recommend them, and I can I can actually commend them to, to your average believer. But I think what we're trying to do is is understand that uh, our personal bias is going to be put into any commentary. That's to be expected. Mine as well. My own personal bias towards the text is going to be reflected in my own commentary here. So, who knows? Someday Ariel's Galatians commentary will be made available for free online to anyone who wants to access to uh, to uh, uh, access it. Oh, wait a minute. We're already there, right? Haha, ha, just a little joke. Yeah, my ver my commentary is available online, but unfortunately, I don't think a lot of Christians know about it. 
Let's see what we can do to change that, all right? Okay, so let's read this uh, version right here. The commentary that I'm going to quote is the standard historic Christian interpretation and application of this verse. So, let's keep reading it, and I think it's self-explanatory. I don't even really have to stop and comment. Here we go. And this is broken down into one, two, about two sections. All right. First section reads number one, point number one. <clears throat> According to Paul, the law has a negative purpose. That is, it was added because of transgressions. Paul has already demonstrated what the law does not do. Namely, it does not make anyone righteous before God, as in verse 11 of this chapter. It is not based on faith, as in verse 12. It is not the basis of inheritance. And because of that, it was added because of transgressions, verse 19. So it's kind of this progressive uh, 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 view leading up to their conclusion of why it has a negative purpose in verse 19. They go on to say... So if the law is divorced from righteousness, faith, and inheritance of the blessing, to what is the law related? To what is law related? They answer, Paul says that the law is related to transgressions. A transgression is the violation of a standard. The law provides the objective standard by which the violations are measured. In order for sinners to know how sinful they really are, how far they deviate from God's standards, God gave the law. Before the law was given, there was sin. See Romans 5.13. But after the law was given, sin could be clearly specified and measured. See Romans 3.20, Romans 4.15, and Romans 7.7. Each act or attitude could then be labeled as a transgression of this or that commandment of the law. By the way, I fully agree with all of those purposes of the law there. So let's keep reading. Imagine a state, they go on to say, imagine a state in which there are many traffic accidents but no traffic laws. Although people are driving in dangerous, harmful ways, it is difficult to designate which acts are harmful until the legislature issues a book of traffic laws. Then, it is possible for the police to cite drivers for transgressions of the traffic laws. The laws define harmful ways of driving as violations of standards set by the legislature. The function of traffic laws is to allow bad drivers to be identified and prosecuted. I agree with that logic, by the way. Let's keep reading. They go on to say in section 2, point number 2, the temporal framework for the law is clearly established by the words added until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Verse 19. Paul has already emphasized that the Mosaic law was given 430 years after the Abrahamic promise. We read that in verse 17. The word added implies that the law was not a central theme in God's redemptive plan. It was supplementary and secondary to the enduring covenant made with Abraham. As the word added marks the beginning point for the Mosaic law, the word until, I'm sorry, the word until is the word achri, the word until marks its end point. So I need to pause there and just turn over to the Greek and show you this. So in verse 19, um, uh, when Paul says, why then the law, why then the law, um, the, transgress- the, the answer that Paul gives, the transgressions for the sake of it was added, is the first clause, ton parabasion charen prosetete. And this, uh, uh, it was added prosetete, Prosetethe is the it was added part. It was added, right? That's the beginning part. That's the, the beginning of a parenthesis that the commentary is talking about. And then the very next preposition, achris, until, is the ending part. So we got the bookends according to uh, what they're saying. It was added until, started, finished. I think you guys are following along. All right, let's go back to the commentary. So uh, let me just start that last sentence again. We're near the bottom of page 130 and the top of page 131. As the word added, the prosetete, marks the beginning point for the Mosaic Law, the word until, the achri, marks its end point. The Mosaic Law came into effect at a certain point in history, that's the prosetete, and it was added in effect only until the promise, see, the achri, until Christ appeared. There's a contrast here, they go on to say, between the permanent validity of the promise, which is Abraham, and the temporary nature of the law. 
On the one hand, the promise was made long before the law and will be in effect long after the period of the law. On the other hand, the law was in effect for a relatively short period of time, limited in both directions by the words added and until. And then their final paragraph reads this way, As we shall see in our study of the next few sections of the letter, and they recommend, they're pointing to 3.23-25, as well as 4, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 1-4, through 4, Paul's presentation of the temporal framework for the law is a major theme of his argument for the superiority of the promised of the promise fulfilled in Christ over the law. This theme differs radically from the common Jewish perspective of his day, which emphasized the eternal, immutable nature of the law. But Paul's Christocentric perspective led him to see that Christ, the promised seed, not the law, was the eternal one. End quote. And again, footnote number 26, this comes from the BibleGateway.com resource. Okay, so here's what I have to say in my commentary. The comments on this verse are so straightforward and easy to understand that I didn't need to add any additional thoughts to them at all. And I hope everyone's kind of catching the, the, the major theme of what they're trying to say, is that essentially that the law was limited in two directions. At its beginning point, it was limited in its creation because it was bracketed by it's it's basically bracketed by the um Abrahamic covenant on the uh, at its inception and it's bracketed by the coming of Yeshua or, or I would think I think Christians would say the when Yeshua said from the cross it is finished right to telestai it is finished referred not only to just the um the not only to the atonement but also uh, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, I'm sorry, the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, it is finished. So most Christians would place the, the terminal point of the, the Mosaic legislation at the death of the, of Yeshua on the cross. So those are the bookends for the, 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 what we might call the dispensation of the law. Started, uh, at, in, uh, on Sinai when God gave it, as you could say, Exodus either 19, or Exodus 20 with the giving of the ten words, or you can go up to Exodus 25 if you want, 24 or whatever, where we're ratifying the covenant with with blood and things like that. But let's just call it the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai experience. So the law started at Sinai and it ended at Calvary, is basically how one preacher put it. It started at Sinai and it ended at Calvary. Okay, so that's the basic Christian view. And let's now turn to, um, let's compare the, the traditional Christian view with a well-known Messianic Jewish author for now, before providing my own contrasting view. And the author that we're going to pick on tonight is none other than Dr. Stern, David Stern. That's right. We just read his complete Jewish Bible uh, translation, and now we're going to turn to his commentary to his own Bible. And I, I have this commentary. I'm holding it in my hand right here. It's kind of thick. It's probably, it's, it's easily two, almost three inches thick. Uh, it's a good commentary. I, I, I have to recommend it. Because of the way it it challenges your tr- prevailing Christian views on on uh, the role of Torah in the life of a believer, and I, I I can tell you right up front that Dr. Stern is a Messianic Jew who has a positive pro-Torah stance. What I mean in plain language is he doesn't believe that the law has been done away with in Messiah. He doesn't believe that it ended at Calvary. He believes instead that it has ongoing relevance for both Messianic Jews and Messianic Gentiles who are drawn into the Messianic movement. So, that being said, however, let's read his commentary. Quote, uh, I'm sorry, my comment, uh, starting in my own commentary, we read, concerning this verse, which is 319, complete Jewish Bible author David H. Stern seems in some ways to take the popular Christian view as noted above just a step further while not casting the Torah in a negative light, and when I say negative, I mean in the sense that it has, it's been limited and capped off at Calvary. It's been limited. It's negative in the sense that it it, it, it highlights sin. It becomes a, a kind of a, a, a sin police, if you know what I mean. Um, you've heard this term fun police, a party who, a person who goes around the party and kills the fun because they point out all the bad things that, that the party goers are doing, so they're kind of the fun police. Well, the Torah is kind of this uh, sin police, right? It, it's like the example that we just read about. It's the, it's the, um, it's the policeman that, that drives around the community and, and points out the bad things that humanity is doing 
and cites you and gives you tickets whenever you violate, whenever you go over the speed limit, whenever you uh, run a red light, things like that. The, 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 the Torah police has to come along and, and give you a ticket. And for people, for, for people who are persistent lawbreakers, right, for, for people who are habitual uh, sinners, this destroys their fun. So the Torah is the fun police in that sense. That's, that's why I use the term negative light. In other words, it doesn't really do anything positive for me. It just kind of sits out there waiting for me, sometimes in hiding, right? You know how the police sometimes hide around the corner with their little uh, speed gun pointed up the street to see if they can catch someone speeding unsuspectingly. You know what I mean? Or they hide on the... Uh, they hide at the bottom of the hill when you're driving on the highway. And just as you crest the hill doing this, doing over the speed limit, there's the police to zap you with their speed gun. All right? So that's no fun for people who like to put the pedal to the middle. You know what I mean? So this is kind of a negative view for people who like to speed a lot. All right. David Stern doesn't really cast the Torah in this negative light. But nonetheless, he seems to not fully capture what I believe is the intended meaning of Paul's point here in verse 19. Because of Stern's widespread acceptance among many Messianic believers, his view is worth critiquing. Moreover, as I say in my commentary, his popularity in the Messianic community, Messianic community, as I mentioned earlier, has far-reaching influence in the way the Messianic movement forms their view of the Torah itself. Okay, remember, I, I, I endorse his commentary uh, quite uh, frequently in my own uh, commentaries because I think it is worth if, if I had to choose only between some of the extremely what almost amounts to antinomian uh, 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 translations of the Bible meaning where they translate that Christ is the end of law meaning the termination of the law and how that um, uh, the law has no ongoing relevance for the life of a believer whether Jew or Gentile if I have to choose between those interpretations of the Torah, I'm sorry, those interpretations of the Bible, sometimes it's 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 better for me to recommend uh, David Stern's version to Christians so that they can at least move away from this no-Torah perspective, at least into a pro-Torah, right? We move from no-Torah to pro-Torah. And David Stern at least has given us that benefit by uh, giving us a translation that challenged um, centuries of no-Torah perspectives by presenting for us a pro-Torah perspective. So, I have to give him credit for what he's done. But, let's read his commentary and see what I have to say about what he says about this particular verse. Writing in his Jewish New Testament commentary, reread, and all the emphasis spots, all the emphases, there's a typo there, it says emphasis, but it should say emphases. All the emphases are his, the bolded parts. Here's what Stern has to say. Quote, so then, why the legal part of the Torah? Right? Um, why was it needed at all if the promises of verse 18 is independent of it? It was added, Stern says, to the promise and to the environment of Jewish history in particularly and human history in general in order to create transgressions literally because of transgressions, right? The Greek uh, is very terse, um, and that's why everybody has to provide something. Because of transgressions, why then the law? The transgressions for the sake of. It's those three words, ton parabasion charin. Ton, the, or article. Parabasion, the, the, the noun, um, which is the transgressions part. And then for the sake of the preposition, the charin. Those three words are too terse, they're too short. Paul, what do you mean, ton, ton parabasion um, uh, charin? What do you mean by the transgressions for the sake of, literally? All right, so David Stern says, because of transgressions, the latter, this phrase, because of transgressions, could mean, Stern says, quote, in order to contain and limit transgressions, end quote. That is, in order to keep the Jewish people from becoming so intolerably sinful that they would become irredeemable. But instead of this, Stern says, I think it means, and this is Stern talking when he says, I think, I think it means, as Shaul explains in Romans 7, that a key purpose of the commandments was to make Jewish people ever aware of their sin. Not that Jews were more sinful than Gentiles, but that, like Gentiles, Jews too fall short of earning God's praise, as we read about in Romans 3.23. The Torah turns, uh, continues, the Torah, quote, creates, end quote, it creates transgressions by containing commandments which people break, 
indeed, which rebellious human nature perversely wants to break. You can read Romans 7, 7 through 12 in notes to, to, to see how uh, perverse humanity, right? Sinful man wants to break the law. It's kind of like the guy who likes to speed, wants to put the pedal to the metal because he likes to speed. He has the need for speed. He wants to see how fast that car will go. He wants to peg that speedometer and just feel the, the, the car moving at that high rate of speed, even though he knows it's dangerous. He knows it's against the law. He doesn't care. He's got that, it's that general adrenaline rush, right? So David Stern is kind of making this, um, similar, um, uh, Association. The Torah creates transgressions that contain commandments which people break indeed, which rebellious humanity, uh, human nature perversely wants to break. We kind of want to thumb our nose at God and, and break his commandments because we are sinful humanity. Cern goes on to say, but at least in some cases, the guilt they feel, speaking of sinful man, the guilt they feel causes them to despair of ever earning God's praise by their own works so that they come to God in all humility to repent, seek his forgiveness, and trust in him. We're near the top of page 132. And uh, he, he recommends in his commentary that you read Romans 3.19 and 20, Romans 4.13-15, Romans 5.12-21, and Romans 7.5-25 to catch the perspective of what he meant there about uh, 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 perverse humanity wanting to break the law and then finally feeling guilty and then coming to God and throwing his hands up in despair and asking for forgiveness, etc., etc. Okay, let's keep reading Stern. And then he comments on this phrase, until the coming of the seed, right? The beginning of this word, achri. Let's see if Stern has the same viewpoint as the traditional <clears throat> Christian's perspective that the law had the uh, kind of this... Um, uh, limit that was, which was, uh, uh, bracketed by the, uh, Abrahamic covenant on one end and the, uh, the cross at, you know, the cross event on the other end. In other words, was the law really from Moshe to Jesus? Was it really from, from Sinai to Calvary? Let's see what we have to say. Stern says, until the coming of the seed, um, which is Yeshua, verse 16, about whom the promise had been made. And, uh, like the traditional Christian commentary, uh, Stern recognizes that the seed that, that Paul is referencing must be the Messiah. All right, Stern goes on to continue. From the time of Moshe until the coming of Yeshua, the Torah had a, quote, conscious raising and, quote, roll towards sin. It brought sin into the conscience of the individual. Stern goes on to say the, the Torah still exists, is still in this force. And he, he reminds you to look at Galatians 6, 2. And for those who have not yet come to trust in Yeshua, it still has this function. The Torah has this conscious raising role towards sin. But, Stern goes on to say, for those who do trust in Yeshua, believers that is, and are faithful to him, the Torah need no longer serve in this capacity, and Shaul explains why in verses 21 through 25, which we're going to examine in the next few weeks. Stern's last comment has to say, it, that is the Torah, was handed down to Moshe on Mount Sinai through angels, a point made three times in the New Testament itself. You can recall uh, Stephen's words, his testimony in Acts 7.53, and through a human mediator which is Moshe. Stern concludes, an often heard Jewish objection to the New Testament's teaching is that Jews don't need Yeshua because they don't need a mediator between themselves and God. And I've heard this from Jews myself. Oh, you guys, speaking of Christians, this is what unsaved Jews often say, you guys need Jesus to, to bring you to God, like your prophet is fond of saying, no man cometh to the Father except by me. And this, this is coming from the mouths of Jewish apologetics who know enough about the New Testament to quote the words of Jesus himself, where he says that, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. So unsaved Jews recognize that Christians um, affirm the, the fact that Jesus is the mediator, between God and man. Some unbelieving Jews even are so bold as to quote um, Paul's word where he says, there's but one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So it's it's true that Jewish people object to this idea of uh, people needing a mediator. And sometimes what they'll say is, well, 
you know, you Gentiles, you guys need a mediator. And Jesus is the man. Jesus is fine. He can be your go-between. He can be your priest to mediate, or you know, the Pope can be your priest to mediate between God and between yourselves. But then they go on to say, we Jews don't need a mediator because we've got Moshe. We've got. Mo- I'm sorry. We've we've got. God gave the words directly to Moshe, and since Moshe gave it directly to us, we didn't need a mediator. God spoke directly to us. Right, and and they're not even seeing the the the, fail, the the faultiness of their own logic. David Stern kind of highlights that. He says this verse where it says that the Torah was handed down through angels and through a human mediator. Stern highlights the fact that this verse refutes the claim that Jewish people don't need a mediator, with its reminder that Moshe himself, hello, served as such a mediator. And as, for that matter, did the Kohenim and the priests and the prophets. I'm sorry, the priests and the prophets. They were also go-betweens between man and God, between the people of Israel and God himself. So the Jewish people who claim that they don't need a mediator are failing to understand the fact that that Moshe himself was that mediator. They sometimes highlight the fact that Moshe was not a mediator. They just see it as Moshe receiving the words directly from God and therefore since Moshe penned them and wrote them in, into the book that we now call the Torah, then we don't need this mediator. But this verse refutes that. And David Stern reminds us to look at Hebrews 8.6, as well as Hebrews 10.19-21, where the central feature of the book of Hebrews in those chapters is the mediatorial work of the priests, of which Yeshua is the, the, um, the quintessential archetype. Also reference 1 Timothy 2, 5, and Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Exodus 20, 19, and Deuteronomy 5, 2, and Deuteronomy 5, 5, which uh, also talk about, of course, this is going to talk about the priests and the prophets. And uh, David Stern has one more citation that he wants to remind us about. It's from a pseudepigraphic work dating from the 1st or 2nd century BCE, which is actually the Testament of Dan, uh, chapter 6, verse 2, which reads, quote, Draw near to God and to the angel that intercedes for you, for he is a mediator between God and man, end quote. And um, uh, one of the reasons why Stern brings this to our attention, I believe, is because uh, for Jewish people today to make the bold claim that they don't need a mediator and that they communicate with God directly actually not only flies in the face of the scriptural passages that Stern brings out here, from Hebrews and Timothy and Exodus and Deuteronomy, etc., but it also is a direct contradiction to some some uh, uh, contemporary contemporary to Paul's writings, uh, contemporary, for instance, first century uh, writings that were uh, available uh, long before the quote unquote Christians hijacked the scriptures and used uh, rested them away from the Jewish people and supposedly corrupted them and turned them into their own Jesus scriptures and things like that. This, the claims that um, uh, uh, Jewish uh, anti-missionaries make today, where they say, say that the, the Torah has been corrupted by Christians and the New Testament is basically this huge uh, corrupt commentary on the Bible and things like that. So, you guys understand where I'm going with that? Okay, so that's Stern's version. That's what Stern has to say about uh, this passage here in uh, Galatians 3.19. Okay, let's do this now. Um, let's turn to... Let's see how far we can go um, with our commentary tonight. I think I'm going to go for probably... I don't want to read... I don't want to read all of the... Uh, commentary that I've got on on from uh from the other Christian commentator. Let me do this. Let me just uh, make um some comments about Stern's translation uh and then I'll read um one quote from David uh Guzik and then I think um we'll probably stop there tonight and uh bring the commentary to a close. Okay. Um by the way, uh in my commentary right in the middle of the page here, um footnote number 127 shows that I lifted Stern's notes from the Jewish New Testament commentary to Galatians, um, and he published his own commentary there, uh, Jewish New Testament publications, page 550. <clears throat> now back to my commentary. I believe that as important a contribution as Stern has made to the Messianic movement, remember I currently endorse his Bible translation, 
not everyone does, and some people feel that it's not the best translation. Um, I I, I, I want to say it this way. I don't endorse everything David Stern says, uh, and earlier on in my uh, own um, experience with uh, embracing uh, the Hebraic roots of my faith, re-embracing the Hebraic roots of my faith as a Jewish person, uh, I was really heavily uh, into David Stern's version. Um, I'm not currently as influenced by his version anymore because of I, under, I understand some of the what I what I recognize are theological limitations to the way he translates his version. But I can, when it comes to your pr- traditional Christian who has never really encountered a pro Torah position on the Bible, I can recommend his version in that sense because otherwise they're stuck with all of the uh, the the no Torah translations as opposed to a pro Torah. You know, all your major Christian translations along with their commentaries are going to show and present the Torah as being limited by the brackets that we've been talking about uh, from from uh, uh, Sinai to Calvary. In other words, it started with Moses and it ended with Jesus. So on that note, I recommend Stern's version. But for those of you who are in the Messianic movement and have, have come to learn that his paraphrase doesn't always capture the essence of what you're trying to understand as far as from a critical perspective, then his version has limitations. And for that, I don't highly recommend it. So take with it, take, take, take from that what you will. So with regards to his commentary on this particular verse, I call this a view kind of a neutral view as opposed to the blatant negative one that Christianity holds, which is that the Torah was given to Israel to make her ever aware of her transgressions. Um, so we've got what I'm describing as kind of like a positive view of Torah, a neutral view of Torah, and a negative view of Torah that mankind can have. The negative view of Torah, working my way backwards, the negative view of Torah um, is basically when man as a sinner uh, interacts with Torah and feels that the Torah is his fun police, right? The Torah police, the law police, whatever you want to call it. It's out there to squash his fun. It doesn't let him have any fun as a sinner because it's constantly reminding him of how sinful he is. And in his sinful humanity, it actually stirs up the sinful passions and causes him to sin some more. And again, that's uh, what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 7. So for sinful humanity, he has this, this, this animosity towards the law of God. He actually hates it. And you can actually see this kind of expressed in today's sinful humanity, the way they they spit out uh, of, of um, kind of hatred uh, against God's laws. We can see this particularly in some of the um, the really uh, um, uh, what we call liberal movements of today. What I would say some of the um, the ultra liberal left wing. Um, oh, what do you call it? The activists' movements. The 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 the, the people who. Um, go on uh, marches and parades to to uh, flagrantly flaunt uh, their their alternative lifestyles and and things like that. People who um, uh, hold placards and banners that that show how hateful it is for God to restrict their particular lifestyle. And without naming any any people groups in particular, I think most of you can read between the lines and see uh, what kind of groups I'm referring to. These kind of people hate the Torah. They hate God's law. And it's I think it's particularly because of the fact that Paul identifies that the Torah points out how sinful they are and the spirit of the Torah. Remember, Paul says that the law is spiritual. The spirit of the law of God actually causes him to want to hate God even more. Instead of turning to God and repenting, like we read in Romans chapter 1, they actually keep running headlong into more sin and they even applaud others who sin. Right? That's, we read that in the latter half of Romans chapter 1. So that's what I call a negative view of law, negative from their perspective. This neutral view is what David Stern is highlighting where we talk about this use of the law that kind of highlights sin, it kind of sits out there kind of like a, a traffic sign that reminds you that don't go over the limit, and yet you know that you're not one of these kind of persons who speeds anyway. And yet still it's this nagging reminder that's sitting there in the back of your mind every time you drive down the street uh, to tell you, hey, speed limit's 30, don't go over the, the speed limit, hey, don't drink and drive. It's kind of like this this fence around the playground where you're playing in on the plate on the jamboree, the jamboree, the, the gymnasium, whatever that little playground right in the middle of the, of the park. You're playing on that as a child and you can see the fence around the park 
way out off in the distance. And even though you dare not go to try to approach the fence and cross over it because mom and dad said not to, nevertheless, it's still there as a reminder to you that that's the boundary of your playground limit. And so even though you don't have this propensity to climb the fence and explore the world beyond the fence, nevertheless, it is a limit to your fun and it's kind of a neutral perspective in that sense. It's just a reminder to you that this is the limit of the playground. Don't go beyond the limits. That's what I call the neutral view. It kind of highlights what sin is, but doesn't really stir up this sinful propensity within you. So you're still a sinful man, but you don't have this desire to you know, walk down Main Street flagrantly uh, uh, flaunting how sinful that you are. And then there's this positive view that we haven't really talked about yet. We're going to get to that next week. So reading this last comment, uh, um, uh, paragraph in my sentence, I say um, that Stern presents a kind of a neutral view as opposed to the blatant negative one that Christianity holds. So Stern's view is that basically the Torah was given to Israel to make her ever aware of her transgression. And so this is kind of a neutral view. And this misses the point of Paul's argument at this point in the letter. And I'll stop right there. So in closing, let me just say what we let me let me in 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 kind of a uh, um in conclusion, let me just kind of uh, uh um what do I want to say? Um kind of a wet our appetite for next week's uh where we're going to go next week. Um we're going to look at one more Christian commentary next week from uh David Guzik which I think is a kind of a combination of Stern and the Bible Gateway. In other words, it combines kind of the negative view of Torah, where it kind of stirs up sinful propensity within the humans, and the idea that it highlights and, and, and showcases sin for what it truly is, even though it may not stir up the sinful propensity within us. And that's what I call kind of the neutral view. It kind of sits out there passively, daring you to uh, uh, to violate its its precepts. It's kind of like if there was a, uh, in a a sign on the fence of the uh, playground that I'm describing in my little analogy. It's as if there was a sign on the fence that said, I dare you to climb over this. I dare you. Go ahead, try it. See what happens. Right? That's kind of, um, you know, kind of, come on, come on, bring it on. That, that's kind of the neutral view of Torah. It's kind of sitting out there. Kind of in the back of our mind, we know it's there. We don't like the fact that it's there, but at least it doesn't cause us to to sin and scale the wall. So we're going to combine those two views next week, if that makes any sense. But let me say this in closing, because I don't want to confuse anyone. As we read through the Torah, and we remember we started with the Deuteronomy passage where the children were asking Moshe, why then the law? And interestingly enough, why didn't Paul just simply answer the same way that Moshe answered in Deuteronomy chapter 6, around verse 20 through 25, the way that Moshe gave it. If in his passage, in his book of Galatians, he says, why was the law given? Why didn't he just turn to and quote from the book of Deuteronomy? I mean, just recently, he quoted from the book of Habakkuk. He quoted from the book of Leviticus chapter 18. And he quoted twice from the book of Deuteronomy already in his previous arguments leading up to this point. So why doesn't he just then quote from the book of Deuteronomy again and show that the purpose of the law as answered by Moshe way back in Deuteronomy 6 verses 20 through 25 was that the law was given in order to bring us safely, give, give us a righteousness that will allow us to stay in the land. Remember, go back and look at Deuteronomy 6 25 again. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of this law? Why then the law, basically? In verse um, 20. For Moshe says, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. In other words, here's your answer. Why then the law? It was given so that we should fear the Lord for our good always and that the Lord might preserve us alive as we are this day. And, verse 25, the law will be our righteousness provided we're careful to do all the commandments as he has commanded us. So we see then that from the Deuteronomy perspective, the answer to the question why then the law was that it was directly tied to both living in the land and uh, causing us to fear the Lord our God for our good. And and the kicker is the verse 25 that it will be our righteousness. And we've talked about this in the past that the righteousness that Moshe is referring to must by context refer to behavioral righteousness behavioral righteousness, because we know in Galatians that Paul says that the law does not provide a forensic righteousness, meaning if you if you simply obey the law, 
it will not lead to, it will not provide a, an automatic cause and effect of forensic righteousness, meaning it will not cause you to be counted as uh, salvifically saved. But by, con- by comparison, uh, it's worth noting that it will in fact provide a behavioral righteousness. Particularly, you're going to need this behavioral righteousness, Israel, as you live and dwell in the land, because if you do not behave righteously, I will boot you out of the land. I'll kick you out. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll destroy you before your enemies. I'll, I'll, I'll bring the curses down upon your head that we're going to read about later on in Deuteronomy chapter 27, right? If we were to keep reading through the book of Deuteronomy. So the point I'm trying to make here as I close my commentary is Paul could have simply answered the question, why then the law by using the book of Deuteronomy, but he didn't. He didn't. I think he didn't because there's a specific purpose that he's working towards, a specific use of the law that does include in his mind all of the behavioral righteousness of the law, all of the what we call the negative uses of the law, the three points of the law that Calvin's going to highlight for us that we're going to look at next week, the three uses of the law. Paul knows that the law has these functions. He's a good Torah teacher. He knows that the law provides behavioral righteousness. He knows that the law also provides a, a kind of a neutral view, like Stern is talking about, how the law highlights sin and gives us a limit and defines sin and helps us to know what sin is because he tells us later on in Romans, that he's going to write after the book of Galatians, he tells us that I would not have known sin had it, had not the commandment said thou shalt not covet, right? So he knows that the sin, that the Torah plays this, this kind of this neutral function of, of, um, of defining sin, right? And I say neutral because we still haven't highlighted what might be what I call a positive view of the law. We haven't gotten to that yet. I'm going to try to leave it as a, a kind of a, a surprise for those Christians who might not have, ne- who might have never heard this particular view, but we'll look at it next week. So we'll stop right there in the middle of page 132. And next week, we'll pick up this uh, quote from David Guzik, who is also a Christian commentary, commentator, and a very well, a, v- a very good one, I might add, uh, a very well uh, recommended one, I, I can add. Uh, although, I'm going to have to agree, disagree with, with um, what he says about uh, this particular passage. But we'll look at that next week. For now, let's close in prayer. And for those of you who are in the live study with me, stay with me for the next, I don't know, half an hour or so, if you'd like. And we'll entertain questions and comments, and we'll talk about uh, either the commentary, we'll talk about Galatians, we'll talk about Paul, we'll talk about whatever you guys want to talk about, okay? And I just want to remind those who are listening to this commentary on the on the recording, um, if you want to be a part of the live after chat session that does not get recorded, it does not get uploaded to iTunes, it does not get recorded and, and, and uh, uh, parked on my website, You've got to join us each week live by Skype. So come on out, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, and um, join us in the live after chat session, okay? Let's close. Abba, I bless your name, and thank you for the opportunity to share with the students once again the things that you're laying on my heart. Lord, I realize that I don't have all the answers, and I realize that uh, my uh, perspective is limited, and it's in fact biased by the particular um, uh interpretations that I'm bringing to the text. And so for that reason, Lord, I ask that uh, those who are listening to my commentary would, in fact, don't just take everything I say as at face value and uh, as, as the gospel truth, but would instead uh, be like noble Bereans and go back and study the issue out for themselves. I don't want someone to be convinced simply because Ariel says it's true. I want someone to read the text and to press in and to seek to under, un, uncover truth for themselves. And for that reason, Lord, they're going to rely on the same teacher that I'm relying on. And that is, of course, the rule Kodesh, the Holy Spirit himself. For he is the one who brings the text alive. He is the one that causes the words of the text to sink deep down into our heart and to affect a real life change. And so for that reason, Lord, I pray that the students listening to my commentaries would, in fact, continue to dig deeper to see if the things that I'm saying seem to make any sense. But more importantly, I pray that they would seek the Holy Spirit as they read the text, as they study the text for themselves, and as they seek to find what is the application that you would have them walk away with. Thank you, Father, for that challenge and for that leading. 
Bless us as we continue to go throughout the week. Keep us safe. Continue to heal us and raise us up, Lord, to continue to study together and to praise your name together as a people of God. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 